This is Tom Fox. Welcome to a special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. This episode is sponsored by Treliant. In this episode, Maria Davanzo, Chief Product Officer at Treliant, returns to discuss a corporate response to uh, whistleblower issues. It is not simply how to triage a complaint, but also how you think through your investigation protocol, how you establish consistency in investigations literally across the globe, and the significant issue of maintaining contact with your whistleblower, and then institutional justice and institutional fairness at the end of the process so that the whistleblower will be satisfied the result, even if it's not one that they particularly wanted to start with. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Maria Davanzo from Treliant. Maria, first of all, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. Maria, I wanted to visit with you today about whistleblowers and really not so much about whistleblowing law or policy, but how do you help a company or client think through what they should do around whistleblowing? So maybe with that, obviously a company should have a policy in place, but they come to you and say, we have a policy. Where do you go? Where do we go from there? Yeah, sure. So when I was in the seat, doing this as a practitioner, we had a whistleblowing policy, but to your point, it was really more than that, right? It's it's an entire protocol. It's a collection of, of documents and, and best practices. Uh, we had a whistleblower policy. We had a triage process for investigations. I had an investigations best practices document that I put together, a compliance matter tracker, protocols for how to handle the tracker. And I even had a document escalation guidelines for high-risk allegations of misconduct, right? So when do you go to the board? When do you, when do you loop in, you know, the CEO, the CFO, that kind of stuff? So there's so many aspect, aspects to, you know, to a whistleblower program, right? So I recall back in the early days of Sarbanes-Oxley when they just put some whistleblower protections in place under that law. The company I was working with struggling to comply with those. So I've seen a great evolution, and, and that sort of summary you gave is just fabulous as to the evolution of the corporate response to whistleblowers. But how do you, and let's just start with in at the beginning, which I call triage. The call comes in, the report comes in, a supervisor calls you and said, someone's just come into my office and, and raised their hand and spoke up. How do you begin to assess initially of the allegation, and then how you move to an app from that assessment or what I call triage to actually investigating if warranted. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing I would have done is the most basic, right? Is it a compliance matter or is it an HR matter? Because if it's a compliance matter, as you know, Tom, it goes down one path. If it's an HR matter, typically in most organizations, it would go down another path and perhaps the HR colleagues would handle that. But let's assume it's a, it's a straight-up compliance matter. You have to, you know, what I would have done is I would have assessed, you know, the, the level of seriousness of the allegation because that will determine who within the compliance function is going to be responsible for actually conducting the investigation. Chief compliance officer is not going to investigate every allegation of misconduct that comes in. I would have assessed it by region and business line because that's the way my program was broken up. I had regional compliance officers who would have handled something if it was a local a local issue. 
And, and so you figure out, you know, who the investigator is in the, in the first instance, right? And in the 10 years that I was at Cushman and Wakefield, we started out with just doing that process, you know, so it was just sort of happened naturally, it would unfold. And in the latter time that I was there, I, I actually drafted a triage document that uh, my vice president of business unit compliance was responsible for. And he then became sort of the traffic cop at the center of that process. He would get the complaint and he'd look at it and make those assessments that I just mentioned and then send it off to somebody else to investigate. And of course, the first the first step in that investigation would be to, to talk with the individual that brought the allegation to you. And then if that person was not actually the whistleblower, chat with the whistleblower and, and then start to gather some information. So you mentioned the investigation across either multiple geographic areas, lines, or multiple business areas. And it's brought up a, something I've wondered about, which is the consistency in your investigation. Just as lawyers have different skills and just that lawyers are better at some things than others, and you and I are probably the perfect example of that, how do you, can you sure, ensure when you're sitting in that chair that you really have a consistent investigation so that you're assured that if it's in Singapore, it's done the same way, if it's in Hong Kong, if it's in Rio, or in New York City? Yep grappled with that, uh, that struggle uh, that you mentioned. And the way that I addressed it was I put together a document that I called Internal Investigations Best Practices, and it covered off on, you know, the nuts and bolts of how to conduct an investigation. Uh, we also included in there some uh, some thoughts on privilege, issues of when you bring in, you know, in, in-house counsel, right? Because compliance officers, as you know, even if they're lawyers in the U.S., privilege is not attach. And so you need to work with your legal college to, to cover off on privilege. If you're in a different country, you have to wrestle with whether or not privilege, uh, what, what the privilege laws are there. But so in order to address the potential lack of consistency, I put together this best practices document that went through, you know, interview do's and don'ts, collection of documents, maintenance of documents, you know, communicating with the whistleblower and all of that, all of that good stuff, because otherwise you do have the, um, the issue of inconsistency. And then, you know, we had a compliance tracker that served as the source document, if you will, for my reports to the board. And so I had the compliance officers in the region entering information into that document. And I literally, before each audit committee report, would sit with the pages and pages and pages of, of that tracker. And I would go through each item line by line. And I'd ask lots of questions of the team. And so that was another way that I would try to manage you know, the issue of inconsistency. At what point do you either make the decision on whether or not to call or contact outside counsel or begin that process? Or is it really an ongoing process throughout all of this? Yeah, I mean, it's an, I think it's an ongoing process is probably the best answer. You know, that, that being said, it'll, it'll depend on the issue, right? If you have something that you look at and, you know, if you're doing it long enough, you can recognize immediately, you know, the elements of a potential FCPA matter, for example, right? And the second that I thought that a particular allegation would have bumped up against, to use that term, the FCPA, I would have contacted our general counsel, and then we would have most certainly brought in outside counsel to start having those conversations. You know, I did have issues in areas like you know, Singapore, India, where I had compliance officers that sort of went off on their own, decided to bring in 
third party. Unfortunately, they brought in an accounting firm rather than a law firm. And then I had a struggle with the implications of that. I, I was able to turn that around fairly quickly. But you have to have people in the seats that are doing the work that, that you know, have some experience like you and I. They won't have the same depth and breadth, certainly, but that they can recognize, they can issue spot and then and then escalate internally so that, you know, those up the chain can handle the, the looping in a council as appropriate. Uh, this past week, the Securities and Exchange Commission announced uh, the largest whistleblower award ever, $279 million. Yep. A stunning amount. In yep. itself. We still don't know the case or cases that related to, but it really brought up for me not so much the amount of the award, but the issue of managing a whistleblower. If someone does have the courage to to pick up the hotline, enter it into the, your portal, or, or raise your hand and speak up. How do you advocate, or how would you counsel, perhaps is a better question, a client on managing the whistleblower so that hopefully the result will be satisfactory, but more importantly, they will not go to the government? Yeah, that's a very delicate dance, as I'm sure you can appreciate. And certainly in the wake of that particular whistleblower award, which I which I also read about and had the same sort of thoughts that you did. You know, you have to make sure that you are keeping the whistleblower in the loop on the progress of the investigation. You know, that being said, there are things that go on during the course of an investigation that first are privileged, as we've talked about, and second, you know, you, you want to maintain the confidentiality of. So it, it is a delicate dance and you have to have, you know, good people skills and good people sense and you cannot, you cannot ignore, you know, and forget about the whistleblower. I think some people do forget. I don't know that they're ignoring the whistleblower, but there's just so much going on with an investigation, especially if it's a particularly complex one, that they forget about that aspect of it. But it's a really great point that you have to um, continue to have contact at appropriate intervals of time in an appropriate way with that whistleblower so that they don't feel like, you know, hey, nothing's happening here. I'm just going to go. I'm going to go externally. My father was a labor arbitrator, and he advocated something called the fair process doctrine. And the fair process doctrine says generally if your process is fair and people engage in that process, they will accept an outcome that perhaps they didn't want or didn't see coming. In your experience that when you allow a whistleblower to be at least have some transparency into the process, that will help them if the end result is perhaps not what they wanted or expected. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would agree with that whole the concept of fair process doctrine, right? If if people feel like, you know, the process is working and the company is actually doing what it said it's going to do in connection with handling an investigation and they are given, you know, appropriate updates, fair updates, right? They don't need to be involved in every everything and it's not appropriate for that to happen. But yes, my experience has been you know, if a whistleblower can see that you're doing what you're supposed to do, what you said you were going to do, then even if something didn't turn out the way that, you know, they thought should or would, that, you know, they've been they've been satisfied with that. It's reason it's reasonable to them. Did you try to put a I don't want to say a time limit, but did you try to keep process after the initial complaint came in to something of 30, 60, 90, 120 days so that you could show if a regulator came knocking, uh, we took this seriously, we took the steps that we said we were going to take in our policies and procedures, and we came to an end result is sort of the not letting it fester for six months important? Yes, absolutely important. You know, I know that there are companies that have that formally baked into their investigations process and their, and their whistleblower policies and practices 
I will say that we did not have it formally baked in. And part of that is because, you know, the program was, was evolving. You know, when I got there 10 years, 10, now maybe 12 years ago, there was nothing. And so I built, I built the program, I hired the people, et cetera. And so, you know, our program was not sophisticated enough and far enough along for me to say, you know, 60 days, that's it. Right. But that being said, when I was looking at that tracker to report to the board, and that was not a metric we reported to the board, although we were getting there when I left, that was absolutely something that I kept an eye on. And I would ask those questions, right? Like I would call and say, hey, you know, Joe Smith in, you know, Missouri, how come your investigations are taking, you know, six months or, you know, whatever, whatever the number was, if it was beyond what I thought would be reasonable. But yeah, that's an absolutely important metric for a, for someone who's running investigations to keep an eye on. And, and I think whistleblowers are very attuned to that, right? They're going to say, hey, how come I haven't heard anything? It's been four or five months. What's, what's going on? So to keep going back to our, you know, point we were just discussing, I think to keep them understanding that things are happening, you know, at a, at a reasonable rate, you want to absolutely keep an eye on, you know, how long is it taking? So the um, overall process and protocol that used and you mentioned um, you have to make clear that there cannot be any retaliation against a whistleblower. How did you try to communicate those concepts to the Cushman and Wakefield workforce literally on a worldwide basis? One, you have a reporting line, but two, to really garner their trust so they will raise their hand and speak. Yeah, the, you know, so look, we did, we did the, more, the obvious things, you know, you bake that into the whistleblower policy. You know, there's clear, you know, clear section that talks about non-retaliation. Every communication that we had about our investigation process and the speak up, you know, if you see something, say something, baked in the concepts and the words, you know, no retaliation. But, you know, it was more important really to show that through actions, right? So that when when people came forward, they understood that, you know, if somebody down the hall from them had been involved, you know, in, in something and there, there was a, you know, a discipline or something that came from it and, they're still sitting there, right? Like nothing happened to them. So I can feel comfortable coming forward as well. And then if you do see retaliation, and I've been involved in situations where I have seen retaliation, uh, you need to bring that to the executive team, the leadership within the organization, and have them do the right thing. Uh, took a while in the particular instance I'm thinking about, but ultimately they did do the right thing. And then there needs to be some degree of publication of that, right? So that the larger organization, especially in a global organization, sees that, you know, they put their money where their mouth is and when they experienced a situation of retaliation that they took, they took appropriate steps. So it's all about transparency and communication, really, I think is the short answer. Yeah, I think it would be fair to say those of us in the compliance community see the great value in whistleblowers to improve your compliance program. But I've always wondered what senior management thinks. And does senior management understand that value? Do you have to educate them on that value and not simply look at 279 million? Let's involved in that. But do how do you help senior management understand their responsibility? As you said, not just walking the walk, but or not just talking the talk, but actually walking the walk. Yes. Again, it's about it's about communication, education, discussion. You know, when I was in the audit committee meetings and I was in, in them, you know, every quarter, you know, one, one of those meetings a year, I had 45 minutes actually with the audit committee in which I was able to report on, on our, on our program and progress and issues and all that good stuff. And we had members of senior management in there, right? So we had our CEO and, and others, our CFO, general counsel. 
And I would take that as an opportunity to make exactly the point, Tom, that we're discussing, right? And one way, easiest way to do it was I would report on the compliance allegations, matters that came to us that were on my tracker, and I would report on the year-over-year growth in those in those matters. And I would want to see the numbers going up, and I would tell them that. And I would, you know, and they, they would ask me, you know, isn't that a bad thing? But the numbers are going up. We're getting more people coming forward. Well, you know, that's not good. And I would say, no, absolutely, it is good. And because that establishes for you that my program's working, right? That my my whistleblower program, the speak up, the say so, the posters, the communications, all the things we do, the good things we do to get people to, to speak, to, to talk to us is a great thing. And, and then I would finish it with, look, if you think just because the numbers are low, misconduct is not happening, you're, you're fooling yourself because it is, right? And so we want people to bring that to our attention so that we can make things better. We can engage in remediation, et cetera, et cetera. And we can get rid of the bad actors if, if that's appropriate. So that's how I would do it. Well, that seems like a great way for us to end the podcast, Marie. I wanted to thank you again, but we leave. I wanted to ask if our listeners wanted more information on yourself or more information on the, any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best place or places for them to go? Yeah, the best place for them to go would be on LinkedIn and just connect with me there. Send me a message. I'd be more than happy to, to communicate with anybody who would like to chat. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this special edition of the FCPA Compliance Report, which has been sponsored by Treliant. We've linked to Treliant in the show notes as well as Maria's uh, LinkedIn profile. She is a great resource for you as a compliance professional. So if you have any questions, I would urge you to follow up uh, with Maria. You can reach her through LinkedIn. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.